Daniel spent 70 years of his life in captivity in Babylon, and I'm sure he was extremely excited when that time was over, thinking that Israel would be restored to her former glory, but nothing really changed. And so in Daniel chapter 10, we read that Daniel was fasting and praying and mourning for three entire weeks. And in answer to his prayer, an angel showed up with an answer. And that answer is recorded in Daniel chapter 11. And essentially, as it unfolds here, what the angel tells him is that the Babylonian captivity is not going to be the end of Israel's suffering, but that Israel is going to suffer right down to the very end until the kingdom of God comes. And in verses 2 to 35 that we looked at last time, the angel describes how, first of all, a Persian king by the name of Ahasuerus would dominate Israel. Then he describes how Alexander the Great, the Greek king, would rise up and dominate Israel. Then he describes how the king of the south, Egypt, and the king of the north, Assyria, would do battle on the land of Israel. He goes on to describe how two northern kings by the name of Antiochus the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes would dominate Israel. Which brings us to verse 36 this morning. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases and will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. You can draw a line between verses 35 and 36, and prior to verse 36 is fulfilled prophecy. From verse 36 to the end of this chapter is prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And I say that for several reasons, and I want to give those to you. Number one... We can take the prophecy in verses 2 to 35. We can lay it over the 350 years after Daniel, and it matches in detail. When we get to verse 36, we can't find a match. It doesn't match in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. It doesn't match in the life of any other king. Secondly, if you notice the end of verse 35, it says Israel will suffer persecution until the end time. Then verse 36 says, then the king. When is that? The end time. You say, well, how do you know that's the end time? Well, look at verse 40. It says, and at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. Who's him? The king mentioned in verse 36, who is around in the end time. Third reason. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, now at that time, at what time? At the time described at the end of chapter 11, what will happen? Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. What's going to happen at that time? There's going to be a time of distress like Israel has never experienced. What's that? That's what the Old Testament prophets describe as the time of Jacob's trouble. The time described in Malachi as the great and terrible day of the Lord. That is the tribulation period yet to come. It will be the greatest time of suffering Israel has ever experienced. And just to confirm that, verse 2 of chapter 12 goes on to immediately describe the resurrection which follows that time of tribulation. Fourth reason. If you look at verse 36, it describes the indignation Indignation means anger. Who's angry? God. And when is the time when God is going to pour out His indignation? 
Well, that's the time of the tribulation. Let me give you another reason. Look back at chapter 10 and verse 14. As the angel is prefacing what he's going to say in chapter 10 and verse 14, he says to Daniel, Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. And that phrase, the latter days, literally is the end of days. In verses 2 to 35, he describes the Persian and Greek era. Now he is going to go on to describe the end of days. Let me give you a sixth reason. The king described in chapter 11, verse 36, fits the description in other passages of the fellow we call the Antichrist. And then let me give you one other reason if you want it. The last three revelations in Daniel, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, all concluded with a description of the Antichrist. So what would we expect in this final revelation? A description of the Antichrist. And that's what we get at the end of chapter 11, beginning in verse 36. We sweep across the centuries to the end of time to the last Gentile king who will trample Jerusalem underfoot, the Antichrist. And we're going to learn three things about the Antichrist in this passage. His character, his conflict, and his condemnation. First of all, we learn his character in verses 36 to 39. What will he be like? Scripture describes him by several titles. He's called the little horn in Daniel chapter 7. He's called the prince who is to come in Daniel 9. He's called the man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2. And he is called the beast in Revelation 13. Here, he is called the king. Now, what will this king be like? Well, in verses 36 to 39, we're given five characteristics. First of all, he's persuasive. Verse 36 says, Then the king will do as he pleases. Now, most kings want to do as they please, but they run into restrictions. Sometimes I want to do what I please at home. Doesn't always work out that way. This guy does what he pleases. He is an absolute dictator. He makes all the decisions. He does whatever he wants. He will rule out of selfishness. And the key to that, I think, is that he will be persuasive. In fact, he will be so persuasive that he will establish a world monarchy. Revelation 13, 7 says that authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Who gave it to him? Revelation 13, 2 says, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Who's the dragon in Revelation 13? It's Satan. That explains why he will be so persuasive. He will have authority from Satan. And with that authority, he will persuade. And he's going to persuade in several ways. First of all, he's going to persuade by amazing people. Revelation 13, 3 says that he will have a fatal wound that will be healed and the whole earth will be amazed and follow after the beast. He's going to die and rise again. Now that will get people's attention. He is going to be the ultimate false Christ. He's even going to have a counterfeit resurrection and the world will be amazed and follow him. 
He'll be persuasive by amazing people. Secondly, he'll be persuasive by threatening people. Revelation 13 tells us that he will require everyone on earth to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead. And if they don't have that mark, they cannot buy or sell. He's going to threaten people economically. But not only that, Revelation 13 goes on to say that he will have an image made of himself. And whoever does not bow down and worship that image will be put to death. So he's going to threaten people economically. He's going to threaten people physically. He will also persuade by impressing people. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says he will come with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. He's going to have Satan's power to do all kinds of signs and wonders. I assume he will heal people. I assume he will probably copy many of the miracles that Jesus did to impress people. We're told in Scripture two of the miracles he'll do. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that the false prophet, who is kind of like his vice president, will call fire down out of heaven. That's pretty impressive. He will be able to do what the prophets of Baal could not do in Elijah's day, call fire out of heaven. And not only that, but we're also told in Revelation 13 that he will have an image made of himself and that that image will actually breathe and speak. He will have authority to persuade people by impressing them. And then a fourth way he will persuade people is by negotiating. Daniel 9.27 says he will make a peace treaty with Israel. He will do what it seems like no one else has been able to do. He will come in and establish peace in the Middle East. First characteristic, he's persuasive. Second characteristic, he's proud. Next phrase in verse 36 says, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was proud. He called himself Epiphanes, which means the glorious one. He was an egomaniac. But when the Antichrist comes, he's going to make Antiochus Epiphanes look shy. Because Antiochus Epiphanes never exalted himself above every god. He faithfully worshipped the gods of the Greeks. In fact, he tried to force the Jews to do so as well. In fact, when he came into the temple and desecrated it, he set up there a statue of Zeus because he wanted the Jews to worship his gods. In contrast to that, the Antichrist will be absolutely atheistic. He will exalt himself above every god. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 that he will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. He will be the egotist of all egotists. He will come into the temple in Jerusalem, sit down and say, I am God, bow down and worship me. Now just so you keep your chronology straight, this is not going to happen until the midpoint of the tribulation. In the first half of the tribulation, he's going to tolerate religion. In fact, in Revelation chapter 17, there's a scene depicted where a harlot is riding on the beast. You say, well, what, what is that? The harlot is the false church. The true church is depicted in Scripture as the bride. 
The true church will be raptured out of the world before the tribulation starts. What's left? The false church. It's referred to as the harlot. And in Revelation 17, this harlot, this false church, is riding on the beast. In other words, the beast, the, the, the Antichrist, is supporting the false church for the first half of the tribulation. Later in Revelation chapter 17, it says the beast will devour the harlot. That's what happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. He turns on the false church and he devours it and he takes over and sets himself up as God. In the first half of the tribulation, he also allows Israel to be at peace, worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he desecrates the temple. He will kill two out of three Jews and he will set himself up as God. Second characteristic, he's proud. Third characteristic of the Antichrist, he's profane. Look at the next phrase in verse 36. And he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. The word monstrous there means unique or astonishing. He will say things that no one else would dare say. You think you've heard it all? He will say more. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5 says, And there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name. He will be the very mouthpiece of hell. He will open his mouth and hell will speak. You say, well, why is God going to put up with this? Well, because this is part of the process of purifying the people of Israel. God knows that this is what it's going to take to bring Israel to the proper attitude to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. But even at that, God's only going to put up with it for a little while. Revelation 13.5 says He'll put up with it for 42 months. And we have that indication here in verse 36. It says at the end, And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. God puts a timer on him. He gets to go on like this, but only for a limited amount of time, only until God's wrath is poured out, and then he's finished. Fourth characteristic of the Antichrist. He's perverted. Verse 37. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Three things are mentioned in verse 37. They are all natural responses of the human nature. They are all things that men naturally hold dear, but he doesn't. He's perverted. First thing is his heritage. Verse 37 says he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Men normally hold to, or at least respect, the God or the gods of their ancestors. He will not. Now, when it refers here to the gods of his fathers, he is going to come out of the revived Roman Empire, so that would be the pagan deities of Rome. Some of your translations may have here the God of his fathers. That's not actually the best translation because it's in the plural form here. It is talking about a heathen individual, and it's talking about the gods of his fathers. He will not have the natural affection for family or respect for his heritage. Second area he'll be perverted in is the sexual area. Verse 37 goes on to say, 
nor for the desire of women, or literally, he will have no love of women. Now, some translate this to be a reference to the Messiah, because to Jewish women, their greatest desire was to give birth to the Messiah. But to me, that doesn't fit into the context here. I, I think the better way to take this is the natural way we would read it, and that is that he has no desire for women, which tells us that the Antichrist will be homosexual. Now, I think the world's ready for that today. Fifty years ago, there's no way that the world would accept an individual who was knowingly homosexual as a leader. Today, it seems like the world would applaud that. Third area he's perverted in is the area of religion. It says at the end of verse 37, nor will he show regard for any God. He will be utterly irreligious. He will not bow the knee to anyone. Instead, he will demand that everyone bow the knee to him. Fifth characteristic. He's powerful. Verse 38. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. A God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will... He will worship no god, but the closest thing he will have to a god will be military power. He will worship it. He will be devoted to it. He will give his all to military power. In fact, he will pour all his resources into increasing his military might. And then verse 39 says, And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. There's his strategy. With all his military might, he will attack the strongest fortresses. And I think when it makes reference here to a foreign god, it's talking about the god it mentioned in verse 38, the god of fortresses. With all his might and commitment to his, his fortresses, he will attack the strongest fortresses and then his second strategy will be to reward those who surrender or to reward those who submit to him, giving them honor, authority, and land. So there's his character. He's persuasive, he's proud, he's profane, he's perverted, he's powerful. Which brings us to the second point, and that is his conflict, which we see in verses 40 to 45. Notice verse 40. And at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. Now what's that? That's a revolution. The Antichrist will gain control of the whole world, according to Revelation 13.7. But here, it starts to fall apart. The king of the south will come against him. We found earlier in Daniel 11 that that was Egypt. The king of the north will come against him. We learned earlier in this chapter that that was Syria. Now, before we go on in this, let me just add a little footnote. There are some who, who think that Ezekiel 38 and 39, which describes Magog coming against the people of Israel, fits in with this very section right here. I don't think it does. And, and just to show you that, I want you to go back to Ezekiel chapter 38. And I don't have time to go into this passage in much depth, but I just want to show you a couple key elements in Ezekiel chapter 38 
which leads me to think that it happens at a different time. First of all, verse 15 says, And and you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. Magog is going to come out of the remote parts of the north. And many Bible teachers believe that Magog is actually Russia today. And if you go to the remote parts of the north from Israel straight up, you run into Moscow. When will it happen? Verse 16. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land. This is a, a, an enemy from the remote parts of the north. It's going to happen in the last days, so it's going to happen in the time of the tribulation. But look at verse 11. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. This attack is going to happen to Israel at a time when they're at peace. Unwalled cities. When is Israel at peace? First half of the tribulation. That's when the Antichrist makes the covenant with them. He breaks it at the midpoint. So this battle has to take place in the first half of the tribulation. Daniel chapter 11 is going to describe to us how the Antichrist defeats the king of the north and the king of the south. If we read on in Ezekiel chapter 38, we'll find that Magog is not defeated by a battle from man. If you read from verse 19, you'll see that God defeats them by an earthquake by hail, by fire, and by brimstone. In fact, so ultimately does he defeat them that Ezekiel 39, 12 says it will take Israel seven months just to bury the dead. Come back to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 describes a time that takes place after this. Last half of the tribulation. The Antichrist has already established his world empire. He has broken the covenant with Israel at the midpoint of the tribulation. The world is experiencing the plagues described in Revelation 6 to 18. Those countries that have submitted to him are now beginning to revolt. The king of the south, Egypt, the king of the north, Syria, try to sandwich him in between. And as a result of that, verse 40 says at the end, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He is the Antichrist. He will subdue them. Verse 41, He will also enter the beautiful land. That's a reference to Israel. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. You say, well, why does he mention them? I'm not sure exactly, but it tells me one thing. It tells me that he's going to go out, try to put his world empire back together, and he's not going to be successful because he can't put it all back together. Some are going to escape. And then verse 42 goes on to say, Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. This king, who was a great persuader and negotiator, is now simply at war with everyone. We're told that he's going to defeat Egypt, and it goes on to say in verse 43, But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. He will plunder the treasures of Egypt... And then he'll go on to their nearest neighbors, Libya and Ethiopia. Verse 44, But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. While he's going into northern Africa, he's going to hear rumors from the north and rumors from the east, 
and he's going to leave northern Africa and come back north to deal with those problems. And verse 45 says, and he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Between the seas. What seas? The Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. And what's between there? The beautiful holy mountain. What's that? Jerusalem. He's going to come back north. He's going to stop at Jerusalem. And that's where he's going to set up the tent of his royal headquarters. Now, with that in mind, I want to show you something. Look at Revelation chapter 16. If you think fast this morning, we've got time for this. Revelation 16, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. Sixth angel pours out his bowl. Now, to understand the judgments in the book of Revelation, you need to realize that the first set of seven judgments were seals, the next set were trumpets, and the final set of judgment were bowls. So this is the sixth bowl that puts us at the very end of the tribulation. This sixth bowl is poured out on the Euphrates River and dries it up. Why? So the kings from the east can pass over. Who are the kings from the east? Red China? Japan? God actually pours out this bowl, dries up the sea to make it convenient for them to come. In Daniel chapter 11, what's the rumor that the Antichrist hears when he's in northern Africa? From the north and from the east, the armies are coming. So he heads back to Jerusalem to deal with that problem. Now, in Revelation 16, look at verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the unholy trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Demons go out. What is their purpose? They draw together all the kings of the world to come together for the, great, for the war of the great day of God. Now, look at verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon means the mountain of Megiddo. Mount Megiddo is in the northern part of Palestine over near the Mediterranean Sea and it overlooks a valley that stretches to the east 14 miles by 20 miles. When Napoleon saw it, he called it the best natural arena in the world for armies to do battle. And it will serve as that one day because it will be the scene of the last world war. You say, well, why is Satan dividing up his kingdom to bring all these world rulers together in this one spot? Well, these world rulers are coming thinking they're going to fight each other. But when they come together, Satan knows that Christ is coming. And so he gathers them together for the purpose of doing battle with the Lord Jesus when he returns. Now, come back to Daniel chapter 11. Because that brings us to the end of his conflict and the beginning of his condemnation. And we see that in, in a simple phrase at the end of verse 45. It says, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. He'll come back to Jerusalem to deal with the kings of the east and the king of the north. And it says, he will come to his end. Now, how's that going to happen? 
Well, we're not told specifically here, but let me show you in two passages. One is Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah's right before Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to do battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. All the nations of the world are going to be gathered around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to be plundered. That's probably what happens when the Antichrist comes back and sets up his tent in Jerusalem. He's going to plunder the city. What happens next? Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. They're all gathered around Jerusalem. What happens? The Lord comes in battle. And verse 4 says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and says it will, he will split it in half. We're going to have a battle in that day. All the kings of the world gather together on the plain of Megiddo and Jesus is going to come back. Who's going to win? You guessed right. Verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. They're going to crown a new king in that day, the Lord Jesus. Let me show you that in one other passage. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Christ is going to come out of heaven on a white horse. And it says his eyes are going to be like a flame of fire. His robe is going to be dipped in blood. And out of his mouth will come a sharp sword. He's going to come with the armies of heaven to do battle. Verses 17 and 18 tells us that an angel is going to call out to the birds of the air and say, gather together at this spot so that you can eat the flesh of kings. And then notice verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. They were assembled to do battle with each other. Jesus starts to come back and they join forces against him. What's the outcome? Verse 20. And the beast, that is the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. That's their end. And verse 21 goes on to say, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's the expanded version of Daniel 11.45 where it says, He will come to his end. Now in closing, let me just share with you three lessons out of Daniel 11. Number one, the delusion of the end time will be the worship of man. Is it hard for us to imagine that today? That people would actually bow down and worship a man? What is the prominent philosophy today? Humanism. Which says man has all the answers. And man doesn't need God. And we are laying the groundwork for Antichrist's message to be well received second lesson God controls everything if you don't get anything else out of Daniel 11 get this God controls
controls everything. He writes history before it happens. And he controls every detail. He predicted the coming of Ahasuerus, Alexander the Great, Antiochus the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, and Antichrist. And just as surely as Antichrist will rise, Antichrist will fall. History is his story. He controls it all. Third lesson. The final chapter is the kingdom of God. As we've gone through the book of Daniel, a few of you have come up to me and said, you know, all this prophecy kind of scares me. Well, there's no reason to be afraid. You say, yeah, but it seems like it's all so close. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 21, 28. He said, but when these things begin to take place, get scared? No. When these things begin to take place, go grovel in the earth. No. Jesus said, when these things begin to take place, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. When we see these things developing in the world around us, there's no reason for fear. We need to lift up our heads and rejoice. Redemption is drawing near. 